Welcome to podcast number 21 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is October 15th, 2018, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest today is Cheryl McCollum. With over 25 years of experience in education, Cheryl is a CSI for the Metro Atlanta Police Department, as well as the director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute, which is a collaboration between numerous colleges and universities around the country. This collaboration brings together researchers, practitioners, students, and the criminal justice community to develop new capabilities and work collectively to advance research, training, and techniques in solving cold cases. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We'll explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This is going to be a wonderful ride. Well, I hope so. Hey, um, how are things down there in Hotlanta these days? <laughs> it's hot. Oh, yeah? People keep talking about fall trips and leaves, and it's about 90 degrees today. Okay. Well, I am uh, cloudy and overcast up here in Connecticut. Uh, as we record this, it's uh, September 21st. Uh, fall is just around the corner, and hope to get some uh, uh, cool uh, autumnal weather. And I'm sure you're looking forward to the same. Yes, no doubt about it. So, um, Cheryl, when people ask you what you do, what do you normally tell them? That I'm a crime scene investigator, and they immediately go to some show that they love on TV and their understanding of what it is that we do day in and day out, you know, based on how intrigued they are by shows and movies. Well, I know that uh, my profession, private investigations, is not portrayed very accurately or very nicely in the movies. They have to dramatize things for us. Mm -hmm. Tell me, as a CSI, what's it like uh, to be a real CSI and what and what do the movies get wrong? Well, I mean, the movies typically get wrong what we're wearing, um, that you can stand and do your job or possibly just squat down for one minute and do your job, um, that everybody leaves, you know, looking just as beautiful as they arrive. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, like today, we, we processed a pretty major scene today. And again, it was hot. So when you're wearing protective gear, you're going to get sweaty and it's miserable. And crime scenes are often uh, not clean and they can be kind of gross and they can think and have all kind of stuff involved with it, whether it's bugs or drugs or needles or broken glass, whatever it is. I mean, it's usually not, you know, the presidential suite at the plaza by any means. Or your living room, for sure. Yeah, right. So, uh, and that's interesting that you say that. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure those suits, uh, get awful hot. That's, there's two reasons for the suits. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, so you have to help mm -hmm. me with this. First reason is, is to, so that you're not, uh, transferring any evidence or you're not bringing anything into the scene. And the other part of it is, is that, uh, there are the possibility of biohazards and other things that could, you know, be, be infectious and you need to be protected from that as well. Absolutely. Okay. You're exactly right. That's what it's for. Oh, well, you, know, you don't want, you know, anything that's on me, whether it, you know, from my dog or, you know, my own hair or you don't want to leave anything, you know, the lock card principle, you don't want to leave anything there. Right. 
Um, and you don't want somebody else to come behind you and find something and bag and tag it. And it's you, right? you know? So, yeah. And then of course it, no doubt to protect us. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you get started? Oh gosh. Now that's the story right there, John. But mm -hmm. when, um, I was a little girl, I became very fascinated with Bonnie and Clyde through the stories my mother would tell. And she was a fantastic storyteller. So she could just get you on the edge of your seat and keep you there literally for hours telling you all sorts of wonderful tales of, you know, crime and intrigue and mystery. Um, and of course, when I was little, I mean, she didn't tell me, of course, the ending of Bonnie and Clyde, but she just told me there was this couple and they were madly in love and they crisscrossed the South and, you know, robbed banks, you know, but they were crazy about each other and it was exciting, you know. So it was that sort of thing that kind of drew me in to being completely captivated by these stories. And that honestly has just never left me. Um, I mean, I've had an opportunity to even meet and uh, get to know pretty well Boots Hinton, whose dad, Ted, was part of the group of tech as rangers that ultimately stopped them. Um, so I've had some, you know, firsthand, secondhand accounts. I've walked the scene with Booth. I've been in Louisiana with him. I mean, it's just a remarkable experience. And um, I'm one of those people that believe in living history. I like to talk to the people that were there and that knew it and lived it more than just read about it and close the book and go on. And, I like to actually go there. <laughs> and uh, which is also uh, refreshing for someone that deals with forensic evidence as their day Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I've been really lucky. Um, I had a prosecutor when I was first assigned to the major case division in Atlanta, and this was in the early 90s. Um, you may have heard of her, but Nancy Graves. Mm -hmm. And when she's your prosecutor, you know, she wants things perfect and she wants you to go get as much as you can get and understand everything that you can understand. And she was the first assistant district attorney that I ever knew or worked with that went out to the scenes. Um, and that was one of those things where, you know, you learn so much from them being the attorney and the prosecutor saying, I need more, you know, we can't connect them yet or whatever. So I had really good on the job training as it were. And, you know, Nancy and I still believe we do a lot of cold cases together now, and we still believe that it is imperative that you go there. Okay. Now, uh, would you consider her to be one of your mentors? There's no question about it. And, no um, doubt of it. and during your formative years in this business, uh, were there other mentors that you can uh, point out to and, and give a shout out to and talk about how they helped you see the crime scenes the way that they should be seen and not just to uh, fill in the blanks. Yes. Um, Nancy, obviously, you know, you go there, you walk it, you put all the pieces of the puzzle together and you don't leave till you're done. Um, there would be Jim Birch, who was with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Um, I was assigned to Operation Weed and Seed, which is a federal initiative. And Jim led that team, even though we had FBI and Secret Service as well. But for our component. Jim was in charge and he was just the consummate professional. I mean, he more than anybody almost that I've ever worked with stayed calm, never got rattled, never had to holler and use profanity and carry on. I mean, he literally um, was just, we're going to get the job done and we're going to enjoy ourselves while we do it. And I think that's something that always stayed with me. That, you know, this job, when I was six years old, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I still do. And I credit him with that, that you can love what you do and, uh, you know, not let the, the negative, because there is some negative, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but the positive outweighs that. 
And I'll just give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. If sure. you respond, um, even to 9-11, because that's, that's something that I responded to at the Pentagon. And you think 3,000 people. I mean, that's an overwhelming number. But then you realize, but a million showed up that first day to mm. either give blood, help save people, help locate people, help get people out of those buildings before they collapse. Um, I mean, that's a number that you should concentrate on. So that's just kind of how I balance everything. So even though I had a major scene today, I had the entire CID with me. Um, so I get to work and be surrounded literally by heroes all the time. And to your point, if there if, if there's a person like Nancy Grace or a person mm-hmm. like Jim Birch on scene or or embedded in your DNA, so to mm-hmm. speak, mm-hmm. that that sort of um, professionalism, we're going to do this scene right. We're gonna we're not going to cut any corners. We're not going to take any shortcuts. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. that it's four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and uh, you know it's the beginning of a three day weekend. We're going to get this right. job done right. And uh, I think if that's embedded, and and I think it sounds like it, you know, that you work with a team of people that they go to a scene and, oh yeah, it's a scene. It's another scene. It's another day. It's another scene. But we're going to do this job the right way. Yes. I've been extraordinarily lucky. I mean, I can sit here and name people all day that in one way or another were absolute mentors for me and and shaped, you know, who I wanted to be and who I hopefully have become. And hopefully with my students at the college and paying that forward by telling them, you know, all the things that I've learned from these wonderful people. Because, I mean, you're talking about Judge Barnes and you're talking about, you know, Judge Mickle and you're talking about Saul LaGrua and Renee Rockwell. I mean, I could name people and name people and name people that are literally the best at what they do. And uh, I mean, I work with Vince Velasquez. Now he's on TV, you know, showing everybody how awesome he is. Okay. But, I mean, I got to work with him back when nobody knew who he was. Um, so that's the kind of thing that, you know, I look back and I think, man, if I had been assigned to another unit or another squad or a, another supervisor, it might be very different. So I was extraordinarily just blessed all the way around. And and to your point, uh, it's uh, you talk a little bit about luck, but I think it also that uh, uh, excellent finds its way to its surface. It, it boils up to the top. You would have found yourself in a unit where your hunger for this job and the passion for it would have found willing mentors. And I think at some point, you know, you would have made transfers. You would have done what you had to do to make that happen. So, uh, but on the other hand, uh, we're both very, very acutely aware of people that um, their their training is fair at best and then they're, mm-hmm. they're thrown into a situation where maybe the uh, the volume is too great and they're and they have to rush from scene to scene to scene mm-hmm. and uh their supervision or management is watching the clock they, they're trying to put the, the, the kibosh on overtime they're you know looking at the weekend and and thinking how do we get off this scene as quickly as possible and, and move yep. and move so I, I think it's it's really important and I and I, I'm glad that you touched upon this about you know the kids in the college because your group there, the kids in the college, the people that are aspiring to do what you do, the kids that are mm-hmm. aspiring to be an investigator, these are my this is these are my peeps. These are the people that I'm trying to reach too with this podcast. Uh, the purpose of my favorite detective stories is sure it's to get good stories, but it's also to inspire the aspiring, and it's to give them you know the Cheryl McCollum's, you know the, the Sheila Wysockies, and I can go on through the names of the people that I've interviewed over mm-hmm. the over the over this uh, series of podcasts and say. 
these are people that you can look at as role models. And what do they have in common? They have in common this drive, this persistence, this desire for excellence. And those are the type of things that I want to shine through week after week after week when I'm doing the podcast. I just have a quick question for you. You talked about an operation weed and seed or I'm sorry. Yes. Can you tell me what that meant? I didn't understand that. Uh, what, what the operation was way about. Way back in the day, but this was way back when Clinton was president, but it was supposed to weed out the bad and seed in the good. So we would go into the most violent neighborhoods in Atlanta and we would get rid of the pimps and the drug dealers and et cetera. And we would do beautification projects. We would bring in educational programs, athletic programs. Uh, police would bring PAL and um, different programs like DARE. We would all you know, spend a lot of time at the community centers. We had football teams and baseball teams and basketball teams. And we brought anybody that we could think of that would help enrich the community. And of course, obviously, when you get rid of all the elements that cause the majority of your crime, then crime drops drastically. And uh, to that end, uh, you know, a little bit up here in New York City, um, you know, uh, Rudy Giuliani, the then mayor yes. and uh, his police commissioners back then, you know, you know, were doing a great job of taking care of business. And it was the broken window philosophy. And I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Sure, and, of course. And it worked. And then yeah. that plus um, crime, uh, crime computer analysis, you know, you were putting the medicine where the pain was. And it sounded like this operation, I'm sorry, was it um, weed, weed, weed and like seed? A, like yeah. a plant, a weed yeah. and seed, like a you're going to plant a seed mm-hmm. to make something grow. So we would weed out the bad and seed in the good. Sounds like a very you know unique and, and wonderful um, idea. But the same thing is turning a bad neighborhood around and doing it yeah. one, one step at a time, one transaction at a time, one interaction at a time. So anyway, um, and you got started, and this was back in the early 90s, but you got started even earlier than that, didn't you, in uh, CSI, if I'm not mistaken? Well, I, I got started in criminal justice um, in 1983. Okay. Um, and that's when I first got, uh, I guess, my feet wet for real. I went to Grady Memorial Hospital. They had a rape crisis center, and I worked with them and worked with the sex crimes unit at the Atlanta Police Department, helping victims of violent crime. So that's where it all started. Um, and then I just kind of went from there. I've, I've been to the Crime Commission. I've been to the DA's office. I mean, I've worked a lot of different places. And again, every step of the way, I took something extraordinarily beneficial. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you something else for the students that are listening. When I was with the Fulton County Sheriff's Department, um, I had a captain, that uh, Judy Davis, that gave me probably the best advice I ever had. <laughs> And that was use your day off and your vacation to get training. Mm. Your department is going to be limited in what they can send you to and what they can pay for. Well, college is worth paying for. Your master's is worth paying for. Your training is worth paying for. You're the one that's going to have to testify. Have you had fingerprinting? Had you, you know, have you had, you know, photography? Have you had, you know, evidence for court, you know, demonstrations? Whatever it is, you want to be able to say yes. So they're going to ask you if you've had some college or a college degree. They're going to ask you what your major was and all that. But when they go to your training, you're going to want to be able to say you've had hostage negotiation, you've had verbal judo, whatever it is that's helped you get to where you are at that moment. So that's something I've done. I went to the body farm on my own. I went to Dr. Henry Lee and his training in Connecticut on my own. Mm -hmm. And it's the best decision I ever made, thanks to Judy. Now, uh, the 
Body Farm, I believe, is in Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Knoxville. Knoxville. Not too far away. So it's a little hop, skip, and a jump up uh, Route 81, I think. I'm not mistaken. But anyway, um, and, and the, th- the thing that you talked about there is, is so right on the point is that your education doesn't end when you leave uh, college, doesn't leave when you end the academy, doesn't end when you have your mandatory in-service courses. Right, uh, right. To me, uh, I have always been a, a, a believer in additional education and going to conferences. Uh, for me, it's it's also a, a meeting with the, the vendors that vend at the conferences, see what the latest sure. latest sure. gizmos and gadgets are and how they work. Um, I also like you know comparing what I use for my tools versus the newer tools and see if they work better or if they just are more expensive. Uh, and then I get to network with other investigators from around the country. Uh, yeah, I like to hear war stories, but if I can uh, keep the conversation going in a positive way where it doesn't just you know uh, degradate into just one you know war story after the next but actually keep it about sure. best about best practices and what works and what doesn't work I get away I, I come away with it a much better uh, experience and then and then there's the actual classes that you're yourself that you're, you're attending so it's like you know you're, you're getting a chance to meet uh, the instructors or the presenters give them their card you get their card you keep a conversation going afterwards and it become they become part of your cadre of experts later on when you need them no doubt so anyway so you mentioned college and kids at college and, and the university um, and this is something that you didn't mention earlier but it is part of your bio so tell us about you know um, the, the group that you formed and, and all that good okay. stuff that's coming from that well I used to teach night classes and my class was from six to ten and anybody that has ever had a night class and worked all day long it is extraordinarily difficult to hold an adult's attention for four hours after they've had an all day at work so mm-hmm. um, I was working for the sheriff's department at the time and so I asked D Stewart the sheriff if I could take one of our cold cases to class because I was teaching investigations and you know maybe the students could work on it and have some fun and maybe actually come up with something and, and he wh- said absolutely and, and when was this and can you say the sheriff's name a little slower for me please sure D Stewart okay. um, and this was probably in 2001 okay. give or take Be, uh, at, a, at or around the time of uh, 9-11 that, that semester yes. Okay. Yes. So right. I took the, the box in there for the first case and the very first night I put the murder box right on the table and I said, this is a cold case. All the victim stuff has been redacted. There's nothing that you can read and, and use. So every single page in here is credible. Go to work. Try to solve it. I literally, John, had to throw them out of that room the first night. Mm-hmm. Before I realized it, it was like 1030. And I said, y'all have got to go. I got, you know, two little babies at the house and y'all got to go. You know. Then the next night, my class was almost doubled. Half the students, I didn't know who they were, but they were all talking. <laughs> Can we work on the murder? Can we work on the murder? And I'm like, yes, but you've got to go, you know, check in with your math teacher or Spanish teacher, whoever first. I don't want people getting mad at me. <laughs> I'm sorry. And then about that time, you know, they were saying, can we stay longer? You know, can we please, we'll lock up. And I said, well, I just can't leave y'all here, you know. Um, And I think we left about 1130 and it just kind of grew from there. So then I called a couple of my buddies, uh, 
one was at Faulkner University in Alabama. Um, and then I called another buddy of mine at Auburn University, Montgomery, Linda Wright and uh, Lou Harris. And I said, OK, I think I'm on to something. But if you two bring in your students and y'all's expertise, then I think we can actually do something. Well, then that matriculated into um, the three of us working together in the three campuses on cases for a couple of years. And then we turned it into a nonprofit in 2000 or a, or a formalized thing in 2004 and then a nonprofit in 2011. Um, and we've been running ever since. And like right now on any given day, I could call any one of about 30 colleges or universities. I could get about 200 experts on the phone. And if I needed to utilize about 5,000 students. That takes my breath away. That is it's awesome. That, that, yeah, that is awesome. And it all started out with how do I how do I keep adults interested in a four hour night class? That's right. Wow. And then let me tell you something else that'll blow your mind. Okay. Not one expert has ever been paid a dime. Mm. They don't ask for money. They don't ask for nothing. The students don't get college credit. They don't get internship credit. Everybody volunteers their time and their talents because it's the right thing to do. Okay. So this this thing of yours uh, has mm-hmm. a name. So you have to tell me it because we haven't mentioned the, it yet. So sorry. Mm-hmm. The Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Okay. And uh, that went live, like you said, uh, it, it was in its um, incubation stage with the three colleges, Faulkner, Auburn, and yours. And what was your mm-hmm. college where you were teaching at? Barter College, B-A-U-D-E-R, Barter. Okay. And those three colleges started it out, incubated it, and then it, it grew mm-hmm. to where it's at now. So um, a, a little different uh, having college students and then, you know, the occasional expert come in and offer their thoughts. But their thoughts would be also tempered by some of the hypothesis put out by the students. So uh, can you walk me through some of those those earlier cases. Oh, tell me about that earlier case. Tell me tell me how that ended. I mean, how that worked out, that very, very first one. Well, eventually um, there was a conviction. It was a double homicide and um, they took what we had found and revamped it and they went and re-interviewed some of the folks and they retested um, what we believed was the murder weapon, which is one of our suggestions was to retest it. And eventually there was a conviction for that case. There you go. So, yeah. uh, and how, how long was it cold at that point? Um, you're working off my memory now, but I think mm. it had been cold at least seven years. Okay. So, so mm. yeah, a lot of time, you know, uh, going by a lot of water under the bridge, uh, yep. a lot of changes in the world in seven years, especially those seven years. Mm. And, uh, your, your fresh eyes came in and were able to, uh, bring in their exuberance and their enthusiasm and their, gee, we're not, you know, we're not afraid of making mistakes. We don't have to worry about our, um, our, uh, colleagues, um, saying that we're, you know, going out on a limb or we're trying to be a hot shot. They were just trying to oh. do the, they were just trying to do the job. And yep. and those things that I mentioned, you know, all, are all the things that hold good investigations back, as you know. And uh, you kind of like took the reins off of them and let these wild horses run and it started. So um, and you've had some uh, celebrity cases too. I, I mean, I know I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of the interview, but I've got to ask if, if that's going to be one of the stories for later on, we can let it sit. But uh, can you tell me about some of the things that, you know, your people really surprised you? with and, and they and they came out with and how how this thing has grown to where now it's a it's an actual viable investigative method. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um I can tell you about the Morris Ford Bridge massacre. Okay. Um that was July twenty fifth, nineteen forty six. Okay. This was the oldest case that we had. And um we had a gentleman come to us and ask us to look at this case who local politician, local civil rights leader, and he said, I just need you know, like you said, a fresh 
set eyes, somebody that doesn't really have a dog in the fight. They're not going to be persuaded one way or the other to take a look at it. And so we agreed. And, you know, when you first start talking to students about 1946, like they can't even comprehend what was going on then. So you have to spend a lot of time explaining truthfully what a sharecropper does and how much money a thousand dollars actually was and why somebody that owned the most land would literally be the most powerful person in the county, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a lot of fun, you know, literally going back because I told them, I said, you have one week. And at the end of one week inside this classroom, it is 1946, period. So everything that you're talking about should resonate during whatever was going on then. So that became fun. And so quickly, when you're interviewing people in the town where this occurred, they keep saying the Klan murdered these people, the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, in the real world, I would want to know whether or not that's the case. So I called the Klan, you know, let's ask them, right? And most people that I was working with at the time, they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, they're probably not going to call me back, but we can check that box. Right, John? I mean, mm-hmm. we tried. Okay. But I tell you who I got on the phone was a gentleman by the name of Johnny Lee Cleary. And at the time, Johnny Lee was in hiding and he had been the Imperial Wizard of the Klan out of Oklahoma. And he agreed to meet with us for a very short period of time in a location that he would only give us the morning that he would meet with. Us. Mm-hmm. That know. turned out to be probably Probably one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had with anyone ever. And it was a a lesson for the students because you think you know what's happening. You think you're going to meet somebody that you already have negativity toward because you think you understand that they are a racist and they've hurt people and they've damaged property and that sort of thing. Soon as he came in, um, my students, and at the time I, I taught at a predominantly African-American college, so they were, you know, they were set for battle. The very first thing out of his mouth was, can I tell y'all about me before I talk about more for Bridge? And the students were like, yeah, okay, you know, ain't going to change nothing, but give it a shot. And John, he started to talk about when he was young and his mother OD'd when he was nine. And his dad um, committed suicide in front of him when he was 14. And the whole classroom changed. The whole classroom in that moment. He, he became a human being. He became a human being. And more importantly, a human being they could relate to. Because I had kids in that class that had buried a parent for yeah. a sad, horrible reason. Yep. Well, then he started to talk about he watched this man on TV. And the man on TV was bragging about how awesome white people were. And he said in his entire life, he had only been told what a piece of crap he was, even from his own father. And that this man was talking about white people invented blue jeans and the car and rockets and put the man on the moon. And at that time, we're the only presidents and et cetera. And he was like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not necessarily a piece of crap. No. Yeah. And he said yeah. he wrote the guy a fan letter because, I mean, he was, you know, 14. Right. And, and two and weeks had, go and by. Had, and had no parents. And had no parents. Right. Two weeks go by. A limousine shows up in front of his trailer where he's living with his 19 year old sister and her boyfriend who beats him up regularly. And the man gets out and he says, are you Johnny Lee Cleary? And Johnny Lee says, yes. He said, if you get in this limousine with me right now, you'll never be hungry again. And by nightfall, you'll have on brand new clothes. You'll go to private school and you'll sleep in a mansion the rest of your life. Johnny Lee didn't pack one thing. He got in that limousine and left. And that man was David Duke. Gotcha. So he didn't hate black people. He didn't hate Hispanic people. He didn't hate Jewish people. He got a job that literally saved his life. 
But the story goes on. I don't know how much time I have, but the story goes on. As much time as you need. Okay, well, the story gets better. There was a preacher in town named Reverend Watts, and he watched Johnny Lee from a, a young kid to adulthood get so wrapped up in this hate group. But he knew you were too young. That's not your heart, you know? And so every chance he got, he would say to Johnny Lee, hey, if you ever need me, I'm here. And Johnny Lee's like, I don't need you for nothing. I live in a mansion and I got limousines and I eat steak every night and I've got on brand new clothes and I'm making a thousand dollars a week. And Reverend Washington said, I'm here if you need me, you know. Well, as Johnny Lee went up the ranks, he was employed to do certain things. And uh, one was to stop Reverend Watt from getting everybody to vote and stop being vocal and stop trying to change the power structure of the town. So one afternoon, Johnny Lee sees Reverend Watt sitting in a diner and he's eating his lunch and he's with four or five other Klansmen. So he says, y'all come on in here a minute. And he was thinking he would intimidate him enough maybe that he would back off. Well, the Reverend had a knife in one hand and a fork in the other and he was about to enjoy his, you know, chicken. And Johnny Lee went up to him and he said, Reverend Watt, whatever you do to that chicken, I'm going to do to you. So Reverend Watts dropped the knife and he dropped the fork and he picked that chicken up and kissed it. <laughs> and even the Klansmen that were with Johnny Lee started laughing. They were like, now, dude, that's funny. I don't care who y'all. Well, Johnny Lee had been humiliated at that point, so he had to take action. So in the dark of night, he went over to the Reverend's church and he burned it down. Mm. Nobody in it, of course, but he sent a message. Well, he said the next morning he wanted to go by and see his handiwork. And he said, Cheryl, I heard singing. And he said, I couldn't understand why these wonderful people, but why they were happy. He said, I wanted them to be upset and distraught, but they weren't. And he said, and Reverend Watts saw me drive by and waved for me to come there. I mean, he was more than welcoming. Come on, it's okay. And that night, the Reverend got on TV and he said, we're pretty sure we know who did this. And we just want him to know we love him. And if he needs anything, we're here. Well, fast forward. Johnny Lee decides he wants to get out of the clan. Well, the clan owns his house, his car, his bank account, everything. So the night he decided to run, he literally had nothing, nothing. He got to a payphone and he called Reverend Watts. Reverend Watts said, I've been affecting your call, son. Where are you? And Johnny Lee told him where he was at. All of a sudden, Reverend's big old Buick pulls up and tells Johnny Lee to get on the back seat and lay down. And they drive and they drive and they drive and they drive. And Johnny Lee thought one of two things. He's either helping me or he's thinking to kill me. Because <laughs> you know? I've done so many horrible things. And he finally said he got the nerve up to say, Reverend, where are you taking me? And Reverend Watts said, buddy, I'm taking you somewhere. They won't never look for you. And he took him to his house. And his wife made him dinner and the good people of the congregation got up enough cash money so that Johnny Lee could run and had something to eat and somewhere to stay. By the time that man was done talking, my students were crying and hugging him and carrying on. And I told him, I said, don't you ever forget what happened here today. People are people and you have no idea what brought them to where you found them. And I swear to you, my students that were in that meeting are better police officers and probation officers and, frankly, parents than they would have been without that meeting. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. That was that's something that uh, is burned in their memory and, and burned in their soul. And if, yep. we, if we can if we can use that word, uh, it's there. That's where it's in there. It's in their seed of mindfulness. And it's there uh, for them to have as part of their DNA going forward. Yep. So uh, 
But so Johnny Lee, he told them the Klan <laughs> did not kill the Malcolms or the Dorsey. He told them there could have been Klansmen there, but it was not a Klan ordered hit. Okay. So those students, we decide one night we're up in the war room about one thirty in the morning, literally, and we're on a roll. And I am so tired. I don't. I don't even. I'm delirious because, like I said, I've got babies, and you know, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. not sleeping at all. And a day so job. One of, the, one of the students said something. He goes, "Well, if all four were shot over a hundred times, how many weapons would that be?" And I said, "I don't know, but it ain't like bullets disintegrate." And then I'm like, "Oh my God, bullets don't disintegrate. Let's go get them." So I called the landowner who owns the farm now, and I called a buddy of mine at Kennesaw, Dr. Terry Powis, who's an archaeologist, and I said, well, I know you found some stuff from the Civil War, so surely you can find some stuff that ain't but 70 years old. And we go out and we excavate, and in the first 45 minutes, we have our first casing. Hmm. And after three days, we have 127 bullets, fragments, or casings from 72 different weapons. 72? Yep. Okay, that's a that's a uh, that's a militia. <laughs> or- well, they believe there was at least fifty people on the bridge. Um, and this was a lynching and they obviously think some had more than one weapon just to throw people off. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary story, but you know, that's the kind of students we have. That's the kind of experts we have. We had folks from DNR, the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, um, probation. I mean, we had people on that scene. You just wouldn't believe it. All cutting down trees, moving debris, you know, setting up the boxes, working the computer. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. Okay. So you have maybe 50. Uh, suspects. And right. this, this isn't a large town, right? Correct. Not so, a large town at all. Okay. So not a large town, 50 suspects. How is it then that there is such a uh, shroud of silence over uh, those uh, 50 shooters, for lack of a better well, word? Well, in 1946, they thought if they came forward, they, they would be the next one or their family. Mm-hmm. So the fear, and let me tell you, people don't want to talk about it today because you've got one half of the community that is still scared of being victimized. You've got another half of the community that's afraid that their family may name may be destroyed. So everybody's either protecting their own safety or their heritage. Okay, that's yep. under, that's that's a and and it's and it and it uh, doesn't get any easier with time and uh, correct. Uh, but no, uh, you know, and this is the not the amateur in me, but fifty people, uh, not one of them on their uh, dying bed decided to uh, say they were there that day and did what they did. You know, it's so funny you said that because when we met with the FBI, that's one thing we even recommended because of those folks, only about three are still living. Okay, and we even suggested give immunity. Just let them tell the story. You know, let these families, because you've got a son that's still living that lost his father. You've got, you know, cousins and second cousins that are still hurting over this thing. Mm-hmm. You've got a community that is still divided if you bring this up. Um, they didn't they didn't take that bait, but we put it out there because I, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to change somebody like about to meet their maker. So I thought a deathbed confession was likely at least one. But- and, and, and with a get out of jail free card or not go to yeah. jail free card. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they could do that. I mean, that's something that to me uh, sounds, you know, uh, plausible. Now, uh, with 50 members of a community killing how many people? Four. Four. What was the what was the uh, law enforcement authority of that jurisdiction at the time? Sheriff. Okay. And there's a twist. The sheriff, when he was asked, hey, where's your gun? Because he showed up to the crime scene with no gun in his holster, said, well, I must have let somebody borrow it. Oh, 
Oh, oh it's good. It's yeah. good. And his brother-in-law was coroner. You know the story. I'm getting the picture. Yeah. 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 So, um, motive. Just tell me a little bit of motive. What? Ha why these people had to die in the massacre? <laughs> Mr. Malcolm, his wife was beautiful and a white farmer was flirting with her and picked her up and twirled her around. And Mr. Malcolm stabbed that farmer across the stomach. So the fear in the town was if I'm the farmer and I've got 50 or 70 farmhands, how do I make them fear me? Because at any time they could take me over, right? They mm -hmm. could hurt me, my family, whatever. So and, this was, we got, we got to regulate this situation right now. So the, we uh, cannot. Mr. Malcolm had, uh, uh, sliced the belly of the uh, the rich farmer. And, Correct. And was Mr. Malcolm one of his sharecroppers? No, he he actually worked for another man, but his wife worked for him. Gotcha. Okay. And he saw that, you know, he picked her up and twirled her around. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the, that was the motive. And, you know, it's one of those things, again, it's very difficult for, you know, people to get it now. But way back in 1946, the way farmers would make sure and solidify the fact you were going to work for them forever is if you got arrested for drinking or fighting or gambling or anything, they would come pay your bail. Well, you had to work the bail off. Mm -hmm. Well, while you're working the bail money off, they're feeding you and housing you. So they're adding to that bill. Sure, because you ain't never going to pay that all. So that's why you see sons that stay on the farm and then their sons stay on the farm because there's still a debt to be paid. And uh, nobles and serf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that's something that goes back to the medieval times. But sure. es essentially in a small rural community, uh, I could see where uh, the nobleman, uh, not the noble woman, but the nobleman uh, would want to uh, you know, make sure that his uh, territory is protected and, and his his uh, life is protected. So he puts together his uh, group of uh, vigilantes and then the rest of the story. If I Right. Do I and all the other farmers were in agreement because if it happens to you, it could happen to me. Okay. So if we all take care of this together, then we're all safer. Okay. Now you mentioned um, the FBI. What about the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation? Did they want to take a stab at it? No pun intended. Um, we went straight to the FBI once we recovered the evidence and turned it over to them. Okay. But the, the GBI and the FBI have both been... Um, to like reenactments and things like that with us, of course, but we went straight to the FBI with it. We've worked with the GBI. Um, right. We've worked with OSBI. We've worked with some great people, phenomenal people. Okay. Now, in, in, in this story, uh, where does it sit right now? Where is it at? Um, where it sits right now is it, I think, I think three suspects are still living. The FBI has our evidence. But here's the reality. If they were to recover a weapon and test that weapon and one of the shell casings actually can be proven that it came from that weapon, you're never going to be able to prove who fired that weapon or if that shell casing actually resulted in injury to any of the victims. So we're still kind of stuck in this purgatory that everybody knows what happened, but we can't prove what happened. Yeah, that little thing called uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of a little sticky. A little <laughs> it sticky. Does. It does. But but again, it's a great learning, you know, situation for the students because the reality is, John, and you know this better than anybody, you're not going to solve all of them. No. You're not going to have all the evidence that you need. And even though you may know without any question in your heart or your mind, nobody's going to go to prison for this because yeah. you don't have 
you know, facts and evidence and, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, and and to your point, though, 1.30 in the morning, your group, uh, and it's 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. uh, Gives you, throws a, 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 makes a, uh, posits a thesis at you. You Mm -hmm. come back to them with a counter and then a hypothesis is created. And that hypothesis is to go back to the crime scene. And to go over it and do it the way, you know, you would do a, uh, a massacre these days. And, mm-hmm. you went, and you went and used all the modern techniques and you made sure yep. you used archaeologists to do the excavations. You did everything the right way. You know, and I, I was thinking while you were talking about it, gee, what if one of those bullets or one of those casings found there matched a crime from a later, like a 1960 yep. 60 crime or 1970 crime, and now you have a warm body to go with that gun and you know somebody that's a lead that's something you can work with and then absolutely you go so you know it was not for naught obviously i mean you 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 um you you have gold in in your in your hands it's just that maybe um there was no other no other way of matching it with anything else mm-hmm. uh that could put it together for you but uh it did bring more light back on the story it did uh, cause a a community to revisit a horrific act you know from 70 years ago um, not, it's not over yet. I mean, it can still, it can still happen. It can, something can still come out of this. Maybe you're going to get that, um, you're going to get, uh, an, an anonymous letter telling you that, uh, there's something in a safe deposit box that upon that person's death <laughs> is going to be, yeah. you know, it's going to be your case. So you don't know. That would be fantastic. Yeah. We even put an ad in the paper saying if you have, you know, a weapon that was handed down to you or wheeled to you and you want it tested, we would do that, you know, just so you could know that this was not used there or possibly used there. We didn't get any bite, but, you know, we tried. And like you, I mean, I'm going to check the mailbox every day. You never know. No, you're right. You never know. You're right. I I mean, I've got a couple unsolved still sitting on my desk, and um, I have a picture of a a lady, you know, her yearbook picture staring at, stares at me every day. So I, you know, I know what that feels like. Sure. Um, So uh, tell me just a little bit about CrimeCon. That's something that I've kind mm-hmm. of learned about from a, a, a colleague of yours, um, Sheila Waisaki. I'm going to mention mm-hmm. her name again on the podcast because she love is a, her. She's a guest on our podcast. Yeah. And um, so, tell me a little bit about CrimeCon and how that has impacted on your life a little bit, and how and how that might be causing synergy to do some more things. So, if you could, yes. okay, please. CrimeCon is the most remarkable group of people that I've ever spent a weekend with that are like-minded. Um, so, forget family and friends. These are, you know, people that have come together because true crime is their passion. And it's everybody from Nancy Grace and Sheila and, you know, the folks at 20, you know, 60 Minutes and 2020 and reporters and police officers and detectives and crime scene investigators and forensics experts. Um, there's tons of PhDs. There's tons of writers. Um, I mean, it's everybody you can imagine. So if you watch Cold Justice, Kelly Siegler was there. Nancy Grace was there. Um, there was a hundred podcasters, a hundred. Um, I mean, I, the amount of brain power and talent in that hotel was extraordinary. 
And so what you do is you get this, you know, booklet and it tells you all the things you can go to that day. So one is going to be the family of the girls that were killed on the bridge in Delphi. Then it's going to be a meet and greet with Kelly Ziegler. Then you're going to be able to meet the people that uncovered this cold case or um, invented the MVAT. They were there. Um, Mm. The latest and greatest technology. You've got people walking around doing podcasts and interviewing people and um, putting information out there on missing persons. But all the sessions, I mean, you want to go to everything. They're all that good. Um, How to catch a liar. How to um, work a crime scene. Um, What do you take from a crime scene? Um, How do you use a simulator? I mean, everything that you could possibly ever want to know is right there. And then you walk down the hall and there's Nancy Grace. And Mm -hmm. she's talking about, you know, her background. And F. Lee Bailey has been. And um, Carl Marino, who plays the young Joe Kenda. I mean, just you just every corner, you're like, oh my God, I love that person. Oh my gosh, I admire that person so much, you know, and uh, I I was really lucky because they called me and um, I didn't even know what it was. But when they first called me and said, we're doing this thing called Crime Con, I was familiar with Comic Con in Atlanta. (laughs) And I'm like, are people going to dress up like serial killers? Like, what the heck? You know? But I couldn't resist. Yeah. I said, yeah. yes, no matter what. And they said, we want you to come and we want you to do one of your famous whining crimes. And I'm like, I am so there. It ain't funny. Yeah. And yeah. so that first year we went to Indianapolis and it was the very first thing. Mm-hmm. And nobody dressed up like serial killer. Um, they had dress, you know, like dresses and T-shirts made out of like crime scene tape. I mean, it was really a cool group of people. But um, we did Natalie Wood that first year. And I brought her sister Lana with me. Oh, and wow. that was a flat showstopper. Mm-hmm. And then. And last year, we did a thing on whether or not something is a mob hit. And um, Frank Collada, the mafia hitman, helped me out along with Marvin the Weasel, um, who was Jimmy Hoffa's driver. Yeah. So, you know, I don't do anything fake. I mean, I bring everything that I've got that's Mm -hmm. real that I know. And, you know, I'll bring the murder box and I'll turn it over to you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe we're going to solve something. That's the goal. And then the families, the families are told, and um, of course, they're all in because it's like that's 5,000 more people that are going to know about my case. And I'm a firm believer in media as an investigative tool, firm believer, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to cold cases. Sure. And, uh, you know, so we try to get as much information out and, you know, keep the... Uh, keep the story going. Okay. So um, this is a good time to ask, how can people get in touch with you? Um, They can find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and it's Cheryl with an S McCollum, M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M or at the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. I've got an email and I've got Facebook and all that for them as well. So Mm -hmm. um, the students do monitor it. So, you know, if I don't get back to you quickly, you know, email me again. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Well, I am a... Please reach out. Yeah. You know me. I'm a persistent investigator. Yes. (laughs) But um, so I want to thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you uh, firing up your Skype for me today. Absolutely. That was very nice. And uh, I I really appreciate you uh, sitting with us today. That was a great story. And uh, I hope that we can uh, talk again soon. John, anytime. And I'll tell you what you're doing here is so powerful and important. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make all of my students start downloading every single one of these things because this advice from other people, it can change their career for the better. Uh, well, if you could see me, you're seeing me blush. So uh, well, that's true. Thank
Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's kind words. I've been uh, I've been to the rodeo a few times. I've been around the block, as they say. Yep. Uh, 42 years in this business in some capacity. And if I can leave a legacy of uh, professional investigation uh, where people are inspired by it uh, and they can take it forward and make that part of their DNA, well, then uh, I'm all in for that. And that's the whole purpose of the podcast and my uh, website, All Things Investigative. So thank you again. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Next week's guest is Martin D. Lant. He is both an award-winning journalist and a licensed private investigator specializing in wrongful convictions. He has a full-service investigations agency, Ace Investigations, in Ohio, and has written extensively. His 1991 book, Presumed Guilty, was named by the Washington Post as one of the eight most important books on the miscarriages of justice ever published. Our circle around the campfire continues to grow by leaps and bounds. I thank you for telling your friends and leaving reviews on your favorite podcast app. FYI, each episode takes around five hours to research, interview, edit, format, and produce, as well as share. Then there are the expenses to air the shows. I love these podcasts, and your ongoing support is appreciated. You can support the show for less than a couple coffees a month at patreon.com forward slash my favorite detective stories. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash my favorite detective stories, all one word. And you will receive all the stories and just the stories from my guests. But wait, there is more. Each guest has given me a second story exclusively for Patreon subscribers. Help me bring to you my favorite detective stories.